and of course for our lecturer tonight to come from Iceland, as the principal was reminding us on the way, this is just a mild spring weather. <laughs> but it is our great pleasure to have the first anthropologist in, in this series, uh, Professor Disney Person. And for the anecdotal record, the first time I heard about this week was when I was finishing my PhD, I had foolishly accepted to take on a full uh, lectureship at the same time, a temporary lectureship at the same time as finishing my thesis. And that brought me from the London School of Economics to Manchester. It was very hard, and I don't recommend it to anyone. On the other hand, it was marvelous, because I had to teach for someone called Tim Ingold, and uh, Tim very generously gave me his huge office and went to sit in a tiny little telephone cabin kind of size of place in the back, writing three books in nine months. <laughs> and I had the whole library to myself, and I spent the whole year reading things that I had never read, be read before because the kind of anthropology team was doing and is still doing is absolutely unique and original. But Gisli was one of the first students of Tim and his book had just come out on fisheries in Iceland. And this led to a, a long uh, friendship. Um, uh, Gisli's interests are very close to mine. And I'm just saying that because it just shows why anthropology has so much to say on the theme of, of uh, the series that we have developed for the Lineker Lectures this year. First of all, because as anthropologists, we are trained to look at things holistically. We are trained to understand cultures and ways of life of people who do not separate things as we do. So all the work that is done now in the 21st century in many sciences, in, in the natural sciences, in geography, etc., etc., which is to put back together things that the Western mind has separated, where we were trained to see it as integrated for a start. And I think Gisli will talk about uh, somebody who has greatly inspired him and myself as well, a marvelous anthropologist called Roy Rappaport, who is a great example of that. But then what is so exceptional in Gisli's work is that he brought all that so-called exotic knowledge right into the heart of understanding his own culture, his own society, Iceland, in his first work, in his relationship with fisheries, that is natural resource management, and the intricate relationships between Icelandic fishermen and the European uh, Union quotas, but also the wealth of indigenous knowledge that exists in, in Iceland and the way people were thinking about these resources in their own very traditional and, and very important ways as well. And then, remaining a specialist of his own culture and society, Gisli could not, not get into uh, genetics when the human genome uh, was in, in, in full long research because Iceland is that very unique place where everybody is related to each other. And that led to a very long uh, period of research on, on genomics and genetics. 
And what is absolutely marvelous in the lecture of, of uh, tonight is that he's seen a way to integrate the both research programs together and, and he's going to use Eleanor Ostrom's theory to try to understand the way we think about genetics. And I have to be so grateful to him for doing this because I was very, very much hoping that Eleanor Ostrom would be one of our speakers. Of course, when I put this seminar series together, and this year was on top of my list as someone who must come and give a talk. Second was Eleanor Ostrom, unfortunately, she was not able to come. And so we're going to go through her ideas uh, through the work, the creative way in which Gisli is using her ideas here. Thank you, Laura, for the introduction. And I want to thank uh, Nick and the college for the invitation to uh, give a talk in this interesting series. These are important themes. Uh, keep telling me if my voice is too low. It's normally too low, so I, I need to be reminded. And, um, I hope you can all hear me. Uh, I appreciate to be back in Oxford. Uh, the title is a bit different, and as Laura mentioned. I play with titles, but the topic is the same, so don't worry. Uh, we're still on track. I'm, I'm playing with a few different things, and, and uh, maybe the key message is that uh, we need to open a discursive space for the resource domain and, and genomics, the body and the environment, uh, 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 and uh, if it sounds uh, fuzzy at times, uh, I think uh, in my defense, Thomas Lineker would have liked it, uh, uh, being a humanist and, and uh, an uh, someone with medical training and, and interest in the body. So I think it is a Lineker theme, although it may sound a bit wild at times. Um, recently, it was publicly announced, almost by chance, and to everyone's surprise, that one of the main importers of salt in Iceland was selling what is classified as industrial salt, to numerous producers of human food. Not only had we deregulated banks with spectacular implications for the public in both Iceland and elsewhere, we had deregulated, at least in practice, a major component of human food, immersing the body of practically every Icelander for years in cheap salt normally intended for entirely different purposes, including sanitation, oil production, the manufacture of drugs, and the defreezing of icy roads. The issue immediately raised, raised concerns. Who knows what the soul contained? Will we ever know? What is this doing to our bodies? How should such things be regulated? What failed? And so on. The raging debates that followed about historical accuracy, specific implicated food products, the relative responsibility of suppliers, producers, surveillance agencies involved with food security, European standards, health implications, etc., have left ample space for irony and humor. And here's one example. There's a baker who's been using industrial salt, and the city authorities are using his salt for the icy road. 
So we've had humor like that. Uh, numerous conversations in almost any kind of context, context in supermarkets, bakeries, and over lunch or dinner with friends and family have been initiated by sentences such as, does this contain industrial salt? Not to mention references to biblical language about being the salt of the earth, worthy of salt, above salt, and so on. One might indeed take the biblical language seriously. In Western discourse, salt has not always been a positive thing. Apparently, in the Middle Ages, salt was spread on land to poison it as a punishment to landowners who had transgressed against society in some way. Perhaps Icelanders needed to be corrected for the financial sins of their hyperactive bankers. Even more up to the point, Icelanders are quite literally the salt of the earth, the product of road salt, manufactured for managing traffic on icy terrain. This curious case, and I suspect England's, England has its own versions or parallels, highlights the intimate relations I want to talk about between porous bodies and molecular environments and how they might need to be governed, regulated, and managed. There's another crazy case in Iceland going on at the moment. 400 women have, have had uh, silicone implants in their breasts, and which are leaking, and uh, the authorities are struggling with doing something uh, uh, about it. Uh, and you, I'm sure you, England has its own debates of that sort. Might there be future concerns in cases such as these, some conditioning effects that later generations might need to worry about, some epigenetic implications with lasting environmental imprints in our bodies, to borrow modern biological jargon, and in that case, what would be the relevant governance regimes? Before going on, and along the way, I shall insert some observations on social theory and genomic stuff is a slippery road, perhaps it needs some salt. So these are the themes. Uh, I want to talk about scales, the nanoscale of the cell and our bodies, and the giga scale of, of the universe. Uh, are these separate discourses in terms of governance, or could we possibly uh, apply the same kind of uh, discourse? Uh, and this brings me into epigenetics and the implications, uh, especially in nutritional epigenetics, the business with, with food and our bodies uh, and governance. Um, theoretical discussions on how to govern so-called commons or open access natural resources have a long history, especially in political theory. William Lloyd, for instance, who studied at Oxford during the early 18th century, wrote his famous tract, on the checks to population in 1833, exploring the problem of overstock pastures in the commons of Old England with a conceptual framework that later inspired Garrett Hardin, Hardin's influential thesis of the tragedy of the commons. Until the 1980s, however, the commons had rarely been addressed in the context of consistent comparative and empirical work juxtaposing speculation and theory on the one hand, and actual regimes on the other. At that point, in the 1980s, several fields of scholarships, in particular anthropology, ecology, economics, and political science, collectively established a new interdisciplinary domain focusing on cultures, 
practices and institutions associated with the governance of commons. Just a few references. One sign of change was the volume The Question of the Commons, edited by Bonnie McKay and, and James Atchison, two anthropologists, published in 1987. Often marine fisheries were seen as the prototype of commons. If straddling fishing stocks failed to respect regional and national territorial jurisdiction and concerns, Governance was, by definition, a highly complicated endeavor. The oceans, indeed, were increasingly seen as global commons that needed careful theoretical and practical attention. Uh, we then have Ostrom, Ostrom's famous book, and, and uh, I'll say something more about Jason of later on. And I'm saying that these are two different discourses that somehow need to meet. Without doubt, the new interdisciplinary effort to address questions related to governance, to the governance of commons, was partly informed by the growing environmental problems of late modernity, including those posed by rapidly expanding human populations, ever more efficient technologies of extraction and exploitation, and the near collapse of entire ecosystems and animal populations, especially fish. Arguably, more than any other single work, Eleanor Ostrom's book, Governing the Commons, carved the new interdisciplinary domain of the commons. In the process, our world of concern was vastly expanded. Think galactically, act locally. It's not just a silly Star Trek thing on the internet. There are serious concerns with, commons, with the commons of both the globe and the Milky Way, with rubbish in outer space, for instance, and cultural heritage on the moon. When I was writing this, I thought I had invented the term think galactically, but it was obviously on the web long before. Human activities, however, are not just altering the climate of the globe and the conditions of outer space, but also the structures of bodies and genomes, even life itself. As we will see, this too invites common issues and concerns. Might we benefit from applying the same theoretical framework to both domains, the nano world of bodies, cells, and genes, and the giga world of the globe and the Milky Way? Or do we need specific governance regimes for genomics, and if so, what, we, what would they look like? I suggest the expanding field of epigenetics seems to blur the divide between the body and the environment, inviting rethinking of governance, law, human rights and related issues. If that is the case, environmental anthropology, kind of my field throughout my career somehow, needs some rethinking too. So a bit about scales, nano and giga. Emphasizing the context of what is often referred to as scarce natural resources, Ostrom's work presents an institutional framework for discussing the development and use of collective action with respect to environmental problems and common pool resources, CPRs, as he calls it, an alternative to both the governance of the nation state and the neoliberal solution of private property and the market. Drawing upon the new institutionalism developed by Douglas North and some others, Ostrom underlines the impact and interrelations of social institutions, what anthropologists, historians, sociologists, and many others would be 
likely to simply refer to as cultural, historical, or social context. In her own words, her book, Governing the Commons, I quote, attempts to combine the strategy used by many scholars associated with the new institutionalism with the strategy used by biologists for conducting empirical work related to the development of a better theoretical understanding of the biological world, end quote. Ostrom then sought to bring together strategies used by new institutionalists with strategies used by biologists for conducting empirical work. Biologists often tried to reduce the complexity of the task by focusing their observations on simple organisms in the hope that this may eliminate more general processes and the broader picture. Ostrom indicated, indicates that, the follow, that she follows a similar strategy. My organism is a type of human situation, is a type of human situation. I call the situation as CPR situation, common pool resource situation. I focus entirely on small scale CPRs where the CPR is itself located within one country and the number of individuals affected varies from 50 to 15,000 persons who are heavily dependent on the CPR for economic returns. The CPRs are primarily inshore fisheries, smaller grazing areas, groundwater basins, irrigation systems, and communal forests. End quote. A quest to explore to what extent and how Ostrom's work on CPRs is applicable to genomic stuff must necessarily start with the question of what counts as the relevant resource unit. The creation of property rights and by extension the formation of regimes of governance partly depends on the nature of the thing itself. As Rose has argued, property doctrine, I quote, often takes at least some of its shape from the material characteristics of the things over which property rights are claimed. The physical characteristics of the resource frame the kinds of actions that human beings can take toward a given resource. And these in turn frame the dual relations that people construct about the mutual uses and forbearances with respect to the resource, end quote. In what sense, then, does genomic stuff represent a resource? What, if any, are its material and physical characteristics, and what are their implications for appropriation and governance? As will become apparent, much depends on what the reference to the biological world pertaining to humans is taken to mean. Should it be seen as a neatly separated and compartmentalized domain in contrast to society, or should it be regarded as something fundamentally unstable, what exactly is being governed in biological commons? In recent years, political theory has been busily zooming out, emphasizing the interconnected world of Gaia and the detrimental anthropocenic signatures of humans on the global front. These concerns, however, are rarely connected and compared to those pertaining to the organismic and cellular level. A comparison of some recent works helps to illustrate the point. And here I'm back to Jasonov. Sheila Jasonov's book, Reframing Rights, Bioconstitutionalism in the Genetic Age, published last year, which discusses the problem of entitlements in the context of life itself, has no reference, as far as I can see, to Ostrom or her likes. 
nor do Ostrom's recent books on the commons pay any notable attention to the level of organisms, cells, and genes. Her recent book, Understanding Knowledge as Commons, From Theory to Practice, with Hess in 2007, only extends the commons perspective to the domain of information and the internet. Her earlier book, Understanding Institutional Diversity, which lists a number of cases and context for exploring the building blocks of institutions similarly makes no connection to the context of genomics. Genes do get mentioned in the book, but only in a particular narrow context. Ostrom uses the coding of genes as an analogy for the rules governing institutions. I quote, Genes underlie phenotypic structures in a manner that is broadly analogous to the way that rules underlie action situations, but neither genes nor rules fully determine behavior of the phenotypes that they help to create, end quote. Genes are taken as the equivalent to the alphabet of the phenotype of human social behavior, not as a common commons domain or a resource base to which equivalent or similar rules and institutions might or might not apply. What life itself is understood to mean has been increasingly destabilized in the wake of massive intellectual and practical changes involving a complex array of theoretical and empirical innovations, including those of epigenetics, systems biology, and microbiome. The spokespersons for the so-called Human Microbiome Project anticipate the establishment of microbial observatories worldwide for the purpose of linking microbiomes to the planetary environment and for facilitating sustainability. So there is an interesting connection in the sustainability issue at the micro level. In light of the profound changes that have taken place in the understanding of genomes and their environments, to what extent can Ostrom's work, which has tended to focus on more stable domains, be helpful in addressing uh, the problem of governance in this field? Here I'm partly drawing upon an article co-authored with Barbara Preinsack at Brunel University, who's here in the back, published in the International Journal of the Commons last year in, a, in a, one of the issues that celebrate Ostrom's work. Uh, Barbara and I decided to speak of genomic stuff to accommodate a priori all aspects of genomic material, data, and information, independent also of the levels, levels of their materiality and meaning. It is easy, one may note, just before that. So the, the fusion of the materiality, informatic, and data aspects. Here is uh, some Havasupai, North American native uh, uh, people, uh, reclaiming samples from Arizona State University mm. two years ago. Uh, it's a long saga, and I assume many of you are aware of it. Uh, uh, scholars from, uh, from uh, Arizona University wanted to do a study of genomics and, and eventually did something else than they promised, and, and, and the people came back the samples, which now had been uh, somehow colonized and marketed. Uh, it, it underlines the sort of, I mean, what are they debating about? Is it the genetic information about the bodies or the physicality of the samples in the 
freezer. The famous case of the so-called Icelandic Biobank by Deco Genetics raised similar questions about materiality, informatics, uh, and uh, the recent uh, personal genomics project, so-called. This is a spit party they had in New York a few years ago when they launched the project, but they're spitting material into a tube, and the material will eventually be analyzed, and, and uh, uh, information about them will be somehow stored and, and used for a variety of purposes. It is easy, one may note, to dismiss the notion of genomic stuff in this context. One reviewer of the genomic stuff article that I'm referring to, co-authored by Barbara, uh, a review apparently by a geneticist complained that stuff is often used in a pejorative sense to designate relatively worthless material or immaterial things. Would it make sense, the reviewer implied, to equate the coat of life with junk? Our point, however, was not to be overly dismissive or playful. Stuff, indeed, is sometimes used with a very different meaning for the opposite of junk, conveying a heightened sense of vital importance. Thus, the Middle English term stuff, with an E at the end, from medieval times, which is from which it, it, it is drawn, referred to both a person's essential movable household property and the weapons and food necessary for battle. What could be more valuable? It's not junk. Human genomic stuff is a highly personal entity with potentially profound implications for selfhood, health, social relationships, data protection, and privacy. The providers of the resource, genomic material, data, and information, are active co-producers of the value from which they may later benefit, including these famous people in New York who are spitting into a tube. Historically, the discourse on governance and property has described the characteristics of resource regimes in terms of rather simple binary dimensions, stationary versus mobile, aquatic versus terrestrial, biological versus physical, material versus intellectual, etc. Along with some other body issues, including surrogate motherhood, organ transfer and biobanking, genomic stuff seems to invite new dimensions and considerations. For one thing, with the new genetics, the development of biomedicine and the expanding production of biocapital, the very notion of the biological world has been destabilized as nature is increasingly subject to artificial, human, and social refashioning. Moreover, the possibility of zooming in on the micro-world of cellular material inevitably destabilizes common notions of the genetic and, more generally, the biological. This, in terms, demands a rethinking of the governance of biological commons, raising important questions about the relevance of Ostrom's institutional framework to the governance of genomics. The material dimension signified by the term genome is contingent on the academic discipline, as well as the field of research and clinical practice, and it has changed over time. The genome is no materially bounded discrete entity that can be mechanically separated from its environment, like fish or water. It is a conceptual artifact signifying a system of meaning. The system in itself is complex, as the definition of and the relationship between individual elements 
are not fully mapped out and its boundaries are unstable. Keller's work is most instructive here. She argues that genes have been defined in either structural or functional terms and that both of those dimensions are complex within themselves. To quote, to the extent that this can still that we still can still think of a gene as a unit of function, that gene can no longer be taken to be identical with the unit of transmission, that is, with the entity responsible for, or at least associated with, intergenerational memory. Indeed, the functional gene may have no fixity at all. Its existence is often both transitory and contingent, depending critically on the functional dynamics of the entire organism. And quote. Due to its ambiguous materiality, what the resource of genomic stuff is depends on the particular context and purpose of use. In virtually all uses, however, genomic stuff transcends national borders. As Thacker emphasizes, the global genome is the title of the book, I think the genome is global in a technological sense. It is an online database accessible all over the world. In its form as data and as information, genomic stuff fits the definition of an international public good, goods that transcend national boundaries and require mechanisms for global governance. This is a World Bank uh, definition. Indeed, recent work on the global commons is relevant for thinking about the governance of genomic stuff, as genomic data and information clearly constitutes an endowment of global value which may span the entire planet or be located within national jurisdictions but with spillover properties with global externalities. I'm quoting Pinto and Papin de Oliveira, 2008. However, unlike many of the resources typically discussed under the umbrella of global commons, such as the oceans, genomic stuff is not to be seen as a natural resource in every respect. With genomic material, the chemical substances that make up DNA could be called natural. Some valuable uh, elements of genomic stuff, namely the descriptions, characterizations, and annotations of DNA and databases, as well as the information derived from it, have a high so social content, documenting context, history, and ways of life. For Reinberger, the gene belongs to a class of fuzzy boundary objects that cannot be assigned a precise meaning. In his view, the usefulness of boundary objects does not rest with a clear definition from the outside. And I quote Reinberg, and indeed it can be rather counterproductive to try to sharpen the conceptual boundaries of vaguely bounded research objects while in operation. And this, he suggests, applies to the gene. The discovery, and I'm back to epigenetics. The discovery of the double helix by the middle of the last century fostered the notion of genes as the secret of life, accounting for practically everything from speciation to ontogenetic development, health risks, and personality traits. Genes, it was assumed, kept the conversation of life going. The horizon, however, has been significantly broadened step by step moving from the level of the single genes to large-scale environmental regimes. The failure to make significant medical predictions on the basis of single genes 
apart from accounting for a few Mendelian diseases like Huntington's, meant that analysis of genotype-phenotype correlations increasingly turned to multigenic studies assuming complex interactions and articulation. The genome, it turned out, didn't have much to say. Also, the stability of the genome has been seriously questioned. While it has been known for decades that cells may under stress mobilize systems that reshape the DNA by turning genes on and off, the genome has largely been seen as, I quote, an ensemble of genes strung along the chromosomes. This is from a recent book by Barnes and Dupere. An ensemble of genes strung along the chromosome with identical copies in every cell. It now seems, however, that considerable variations creep in and as a result, the dogma that all the cells of an individual contain the same DNA revision. Uh, needs revision. If it turns out that the genomes of many organisms, including humans, are unstable and variable assemblies, it becomes increasingly difficult to sustain claims about authentic or real genomes, if all of us have several ones. It is not obvious, though, what this means for governance. Growing evidence suggests that the human genome is fundamentally conflated with the microbiomes of other organisms. The human body carries with it a number of mutually beneficial microbes constituting about 90% of the cells in the body, containing some 99% of its genes. If humans are thought of as a composite of microbial and human cells, as Turnbaugh and et al. point out, the human genetic landscape as an aggregate of the genes in the human genome and the microbiome, then the picture that emerges is one of a human superorganism. Human supraorganism. The same applies, in fact, to many other organisms. As a result, as Barnes and Dupré suggest, rather than thinking of genomes as the exclusive property of individual organism, we, organisms, we should think of a metagenome encompassing all the genomic resources available to a microbial community. This seems to have important implications for governance, although the terrain has not been mapped in any detail. Also moving beyond genes and genomes, organisms are partly regulated through a host of environmental forces that leave their mark on the genomes a point mentioned earlier. The results of a number of recent studies suggest that for humans as well as other animals, early environments, in particular nutritional environments, the kind, of kind and quantity of food, condition the possibility for gene expression potentially affecting our health and well-being. Such epigenetic regulation seems to be prevalent in the human genome. The lives of our grandparents and ancestors, in other words, and the traditions and conditions of the communities in all their complexities, from dietary factors and exposure to toxic substances to behavioral habits, are memorized in our genomes, turning on some genes and silencing others, leaving a lasting embodied impact in a somewhat neo-Lamarckian fashion. Sometimes this produces severe adversary effects, including several forms of cancer. 
Food seems particularly important in this context. According to the growing field of nutritional epigenetics, as Landecker points out, and I'm quoting an excellent paper of her from last year in Biosocieties, food enters the body and never leaves it because food transform, transforms the organism's being as much as the organism transforms it. It is a model for how social things, food in particular, enter the body, are digested, and in shaping metabolism become part of the body in time, not by building bones and tissues, but by leaving an imprint on a dynamic bodily process. Non-DNA-related aspects of our developmental trajectory then turn out to be inherited from one generation to another. This is nothing brand new, of course. Uh, it's the governance implications we really should be talking about. Such imprints are not changes in genetic sequence, but their effects are nevertheless memorized and passed on as inheritance. Society and environment then not only enter the body, but also have a lasting impact. These constitutional transformations or dispositions, to use the language of Bourdieu, may be just as durable, to use another Bourdieu term, as those attributed to genomic sequences. Bourdieu speaks about the habitus as durable dispositions in, in the body. This is biosocial becoming in a very real sense. Landegger emphasizes that while food has always been seen as important, uh, an important part of the environment within which humans and other animals dwell, I quote, our moment is historically specific, a historically specific one in which Food is being understood, studied, depicted, engineered, and ingested as a set of molecules which exist in a cloud around us and over which we ha often have limited individual control. To account for the growing awareness of non-genetic factors, new terms have been entering biology and related fields, such as epigenome, methylome, and interactome, and I could, couldn't explain them to you. Epigenetics perhaps is rapidly acquiring a mystique similar to that of the gene during the last decades. The silence of the genome, as Franklin puts it, has given way to the cacophony of the epigenetic. While the notion of epigenetics is used in different fashions among biologists, social scientists, and humanities scholars, this should not confuse us here. Biology, in any case, is far more fleeting and complex than normally imagined. Heredity and generation are biosocial things, and genomic stuff expands to incorporate ever larger fields of non-genetic factors. This has important implications for governance that still need to be thrown out. This is a famous image from Waddington, 1957, a famous book launching the concept of the epigenetic landscape. Another guy, Waterland, draws upon Waddington's notion of the epigenetic landscape and Waddington's notion of the canalization of development. Uh, Waddington was suggesting that this is the genomic, genetic landscape, but we do not know how that organism develops over time because uh, the ball can take many routes down the hill. Uh, and Waterland 
is, is using this notion uh, to suggest that, I quote, nutrition and other environmental influences may be viewed as the wind blowing over the epigenetic landscape. And this is from Waterland's piece from 2006. May be viewed as the wind blowing over the epigenetic landscape and like the wind may vary both in magnitude and direction, end quote. In his view, the wind blows over the epigenetic landscape, setting the stage for developmental pathways. The metaphor of the wind may be instructive. While the wind, unlike food, is best described as movement and force, not as chemical substance, it can be regarded as fugitive resource, and there's lots of work nowadays on fugitive resources like the wind, interacting with landscape to produce, among other things, bodily sensation of landscape and energy. Uh, a legal scholar, I think, Lifshitz Goldberg, suggests the wind is an example of semi-commons where private and common property overlap and interact. Not only do wind farms necessarily draw upon the features of the terrestrial landscape, of public plains and cities, also they produce so-called shadow effects. Once the wind has encountered a mill or turbine, its strength and energy content is reduced, and as a result, others in its path will become will will be somehow affected. And here is the windmill to the right. It's in my backyard. Someone is is worrying about uh, his own space. And, but there's uh, an ongoing common property debate about wind farms uh, and, and its sun strains to treat the wind as a common property. But once you read these analyses, it doesn't sound so strange. Given the potential tragedy of the common wind and the overlapping rights and complex implications involved, both environmental and social, wind farms, Lifshitz Goldberg argues, suggest some form of governance along the lines of the public trust. Similar concerns need to be raised and discussed for the context of the winds of epigenetics. We are back now in the ongoing saga of road salt and the Icelanders, the biosocial implications of being immersed in industrial molecules, the moral narratives about being worthy of one's salt, and the governmental regimes and arguments that might be developed to avoid such fiasco. What, if any, are the shadow, shadow effects? What would be the good governance in such contexts? How is it possible to align public and private interests? Biomedical knowledge and biovalue is increasingly produced within multinational companies that claim ownership of the stuff they use and the knowledge and technology they, they produce. Obviously, this demands some kind of governance response at both the national and the global level. Ostrom's contribution to the question of how common property should be governed was to complicate debates on how to govern common pool resources by showing that many common pool regimes are government are governed reasonably well by their appropriators and that the best governance models are often situated between the poles of either privatization or heavy governmental regulation. This is how Ostrom phrases her core research question. I quote, how a group of principals, a community of citizens can organize themselves to solve the problems of institutional supply, commitment, 
and monitoring is still a theoretical puzzle, given that some individuals solve the puzzle whereas others do not. And <coughs> Self-regulation on the side of appropriators of a common property, common pool resource, thus plays a particularly important role in Ostrom's work. It seems that awareness of epigenetic processes necessarily complicates the legal notion of nature's handiwork. It's a, a, a key uh, concept in, in uh, legal frameworks on patenting. Uh, what is nature's handiwork and, and what is something that you have really created and, and deserves patents? It seems that awareness of epigenetic processes necessarily complicates this legal notion uh, human intervention seems to be practically all over the place and the products of nature seem to be more or less the same as the products of humans. This is the Anthropocene at the nanoscale. While the modernist distinction between nature and society may be necessary for patenting law, keeping in mind the complexities of epigenetic regulation, it seems to have limited use for the understanding, appropriation and governance of genomic stuff. Some argue that epigenetic evidence is already profoundly affecting legal and ethical discourse on genetics, equity and justice, and that what is now known may only be the tip of the iceberg. In some instances, research institutions utilizing a person's DNA are seen as custodians, stewards or trustees of the, geno of the genetic stuff, underlying the language of benefits sharing and the common heritage of international law. Interestingly, as Hayden points out, as some North American ethicists declare or assume the death of an old language of the collective <coughs> altruism overseen by the welfare state, bioscience research becomes a site for the proliferation of other idioms of the public, of collectives, of community, and even collective bargaining." End quote. Why, Hayden continues, does bioscience, a site of newly intensified forms of privatization, patents and the rest of it, provoke such a riot of collectivization? <coughs> One answer to this question may be that where immediate benefit for those who are asked to contribute to a project, such as a biobank, does regularly not materialize and or where governmental regulators play a strong role, such as in matters of public health, pandemics, etc. Communal benefit is sometimes the only value that can justify the measures undertaken. At the same time, pertaining to the field of genetics and genomics specifically, references to collective values, benefits or goods are closely interlinked with a broader collectivist rhetoric emphasizing that genes are something that humans have in common, something that makes us human and grants us equal rights. One driving force behind the, the growing, aware, growing governance discourse of late 20th century was the advancement of free market, neoliberal movements and governments in many contexts highlighted by the theorizing of Friedrich Hayek and the politics of Ronald Reagan and Mark and Thatcher, to which the growing commons community felt pressed to critically respond and sometimes to passionately support. Armed with a range of analytical skills, massive empirical evidence from different parts of the world and a set of creative ideas about how to uh, understand commons issues and to collectively 
organize different competing users. These were epidemic ideas, the debates of the 1980s, no less straddling than, than migrating fishing stocks, ignoring conventional disciplinary boundaries and academic territories. The neoliberal rhetoric has probably remained more contagious than its opposition, refusing to adapt despite the global harm it has done, illustrated by the environmental and the financial crisis. I'm sure you're aware of the new film, The Iron Lady. The subtle plot of the film, which many viewers see as a much too gentle and personal take on the life of Margaret Thatcher and her time, should perhaps be understood uh, as a metaphorical play on this score. It has Margaret Thatcher, who studied on this campus in the 1940s, repeatedly struggling with the ever-present company of her late husband, Dennis. Dennis continually reappears in the drama, engaging in a dialogue with his wife, informing her decisions and her surreal sense of time and place. Due to her tragic dementia and her poor sense of reality, Thatcher seems unable to move beyond Dennis, but occasionally she straightens herself, trying to correct her course in the real world, saying, Dennis, you're dead. Dennis, you're dead. Much like Dennis, neoliberalism refuses to go. Alternative governance models are badly needed for dealing with the global environmental crisis and the embedded body. The new Nuffield Council report, Solidarity, by Prinsack and Boix, I can pronounce that the name, is a significant step, in my view, to forward in terms of governance, outlining the history of the concept of solidarity and related terms, the growing salience in political theory and public discourse, and the usefulness in the context of, of concerns with biobanks, pandemics, and lifestyle-related diseases. So, for the conclusions, in the concluding pages of Governing the Commons, Ostrom remarks that if the social sciences are to be relevant for discussions of policy problems, the challenge will be to integrate efforts to map the broad terrain and efforts to develop tractable models for particular niches in that terrain. Each CPR, as he calls it, can be viewed as a niche in an empirical terrain. Genomic stuff clearly represents an increasingly important empirical niche. In the modern age, a commonwealth of genomic data, information, and material is rapidly being transformed into commercial property, much like distant lands and seas during the colonial era. No wonder that it has become the center of debates on the relative merits of patenting and public trust, markets and states, a CPR on its own. As we have seen, the issue of what constitutes genomic stuff, a central issue for the discussion of governance, is far from settled. Keeping in mind the immaterial implications of genomic stuff, Ostrom's thesis on self-regulated commons and stewardship is highly pertinent. This is a rapidly changing and expanding empirical, practical, and theoretical terrain with a variety of hybrid products, each of which warrants an extensive study. The Universal Declaration on the Human Genome and Human Rights underlines the common property nature of the human genome suggesting the genome underlies the, the fundamental unity of all members of the human family.
family in a symbolic sense, it is the heritage of humanity. Sötza, this is UNESCO, Sötza common property perspective has part, was partly the result of the Human Genome Project and the debates it generated. There are good grounds now for questioning Sötza's narrow, genealogical and gene-centered approach. Importantly, from the perspective of governance, organisms are partly regulated through a host of epigenetic environmental forces that leave an imprint on the genomes, an imprint that may in part be passed on from one generation to another independent of the genetic code of DNA material. To some extent, epigenetic knowledge breaks down the boundary between the body and the environment. While many of the implications of epigenetics remain uncertain, it clearly presents important governance issues. Epigenetics offers a mechanism for the body to assess and react to the environment in which it is embedded. The assessment and adjustment is sometimes harmful but the mechanisms involved can possibly be averted through both drug development and deliberate governance measures designed for preserving the soundness of the environment. A meaningful post-genomic interpretation of the Universal Declaration on the Human Genome and Human Rights must expand the original text to underline the importance of the epigenome and the unity of body and environment. In order to govern Genomes and epigenomes, it is necessary to both manage access to certain parts of our environmental commons, clean air and water in particular, and to avoid or minimize the impact of some others, toxic substances and radiation, for example. Often it's difficult to maintain a rigid distinction between the corporeal and the incorporeal. As long as one exclusively focused on the internal relations of cells and bodies, the issue of genomic governance seemed to resist the gaze and reasoning of political theory traditionally focused on the external biological world. Now, however, it seems we are back in a rather familiar terrain. Genomic stuff and epigenetic processes, after all, invite standard questions about distributive issues, rights to meaningful participation, social justice, and intergenerational fairness. It becomes increasingly difficult to maintain any kind of distinction between nature and nurture, organism and environment, nano and giga. Life itself, its anatomic structures and complex relations have entered the grand and seamless world of Gaia. Informed by Julian Stewart's early cultural ecology, the pioneers of ecological anthropology left their field sites armed with new questions about human life and its material context drawing systematic attention to issues that had long been more or less ignored, such as energy transfer, adaptation, resilience, metabolism, and cybernetic regulation, to mention some of the buzzwords. And ecological anthropology happens to be one of my early passions in my academic career, and, and it's still there, but it's, it's rapidly changing. And uh, originally, anthropology didn't pay any attention to the environment. It was sometimes a final chapter in the ethnographies. After all, these people had to eat something. Let's, let's do something on that. But uh, Stuart and his generation brought uh, uh, the issue to the attention of a new, new, new uh, set of people. Uh, Roy Rappaport is one, and this is his, one of the classics in anthropology. Uh, this is the second edition. I think there are several publications, and and uh, it's one of the few ethnographies that has kind of made it in, in, in the anthropological library. 
Famously, famously, Rappaport picks for the ancestors, carefully explored relations among humans and pig populations, their representations in local cognized models, as he called it, and the ritual regulation. While this scholarship was a great leap forward, paving the road for important ethnographies focusing, focusing on environmental relations and concerns, the human body remained a bounded black box, unexplored and under-theorized. Given the fleeting and relational notions of embedded bodies and stuffy genomics in the age of epigenetics, the framework of ecological anthropology with its notions of bounded systems and human environmental interactions has to give way to a far more open-ended environmental anthropology, which is already uh, in the making. Epigenetic evidence is still considered heavily hypothetical and available knowledge on genomic stuff is still extremely fragmented and limited. Nevertheless, it seems that the current collapsing of body and society and environment necessarily invites applying the governmental gaze throughout, from the cellular to the global level, embedding humans and other beings in ever larger contexts across different scales. In the cognized models of epigeneticists, we need to be more concerned with our descendants and future generations than our ancestors. At the same time, our porous bodies and the internal and external networks and relations become center states. The great challenge now for anthropology and related disciplines is to ethnographically document these developments, to theorize their significance, and to explore what they imply for governance. The regulation and governance of the relevant networks and relations are vastly more complicated and chaotic than just slaughtering pigs and organizing feasts. And perhaps, to paraphrase Dylan, the answer is blowing in the epigenetic wind. <laughs> Nevertheless, it seems time to address the issues involved with consistent transdisciplinary effort, assuming human responsibility, social justice, and public trust. Thank you. <laughs>